Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So let's bring in Mike Schumacher, shall we? Joining us here in New York, Wells Fargo Head of Interest Rate Strategy. Business and news as usual for payrolls growth a little bit later, Mike. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, it's interesting, Jonathan. It's funny. I mean, payrolls used to be perhaps the biggest indicator in the market, and now people simply don't care. It's interesting. If you look at the the biggest move in the 10-year Treasury on non-farm payroll day this year, six basis points. That was a couple months ago. And on average, I'd say it's been maybe three. So the market looks at it and says, you know what? The Fed seems on a pretty steady course. Labor market's in great shape. Why should we get all fussed about payrolls? We probably shouldn't. Let's order lunch. All right. So, Mike, we're not alone in not caring as much about payrolls as we do about Elon Musk smoking pot. Is that it? I agree. Well, here's what I want to find out. Why has it gotten so boring? Is it just because it's sort of an accepted fact that the economy is growing, that you're going to get a steady number of uh, job gains and that wages are going to increase, but not that much. So we're going to be in this sort of Goldilocks scenario. Is that basically the understood theme and nothing really could break that uh, less than a huge surprise. I think that's most of it, Lisa. I mean, people look at the payrolls report, volatility of the payrolls number has been low. So that's the first thing. And secondly, when you, you take a step back and say, how would the Fed's policy actually change if payrolls were to come in a little bit high or low? It wouldn't. That's the answer. And the labor market in the U.S. has been so good now for the last couple of years. I think people think about the Fed policy and say, well, you've got the dual mandate, the labor force side, the unemployment rate, that part is in great shape. So it really is going to boil down to inflation. So I'd say to the extent people care about the employment report, it's really going to be more skewed towards hourly earnings, and they'll pay attention to those, less to non-farm payrolls per se. But either way, the potential for that particular report to move the market's gone down dramatically. And it, if you look at the we like to calculate the, the move in the market relative to a so-called normal day where there's not a big economic release or an FOMC report or something like that. Yeah. And payrolls has converged to just about normal, whereas it used to be a factor of at least two in terms of volatility. So it's come off quite a bit, but I think it's because people perceive the labor force and the labor market as being in great shape. Mike, to some extent, we could cut a conversation that we did last month, the month before that, the month before that on payrolls, and it would play out quite well, quite beautifully, actually today to describe what we'd expect a little bit later. We keep glossing over payrolls growth to 200,000, though, and I think there might be a story there. How do you reconcile the calls description of this labor market as tight when it's an economy still churning out payrolls growth to 200,000? How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, it's impressive. And I think part of the answer there, Jonathan, is people have been enticed back into the labor force. You've had a number of people who have been out for quite a while, and they'll say, well, gee, now I can actually get a job pretty easily, so it's time to get off the couch or dust off the resume, whatever it might be, and go out and get a job. And I think that's why growth has been pretty high, because I certainly take your point. If you look at 200,000 jobs per month, that's way above replacement. You probably need something like 100,000. So the increment of an extra 100,000 jobs per month has been really phenomenal. And I think it is the, the answer there is people are being pulled back into the labor force. It's My- been that strong. Mike, I, I'm going to channel my inner conspiracy theorist because it's Friday morning and the jobs <laughs> right. report isn't going to be that exciting necessarily. I, I want to figure out, you know, people say the economy is strong and that jobs are being added and everything is hunky-dory, and yet you're not seeing the wage gain that you're expecting to see. And in fact, if you look at it, depending on the measure you look at it, 
it's either flat with inflation or lagging behind inflation over the past year. So mm-hmm. what is sort of the, the secret here behind why and, and what's going to change? I mean, and this, this, is, this goes directly to Fed policy, because if it does change on a dime, uh, then you could see uh, bigger inflationary pressures and, high, and, and faster rate hikes. Yeah, it's a tremendous question, Lisa, and it's been confounding central bankers really across the globe for the last four or five years. You look at wage growth in the U.S., and it's been kind of okay, high twos, but I agree with you. If you compare that to inflation, it's just barely positive on a real basis. So why aren't we seeing more of a pickup? I think a few things stand out. Number one, and people always cite the impact of technology replacing workers, and I think that's been happening to a pretty reasonable degree. Is this unprecedented? Probably not, but still, it's it's been pretty severe, so that's the first thing. And also, if you look at the the initial comeback in the labor market was to go to first part-time jobs, then relatively low-paid jobs. So I think the quality of the job, if you want to think of it that way, of the average job is probably going down a little bit. And that's why you're not seeing the big pickup in wages. But how do you change that? How do you get wage growth up to 4%, which you might typically see in a recovery versus high twos? It's been really tough, and it's not clear to me we get there. We probably don't in this case. So Mike, does all of that help explain why we've got a relatively speaking, dovish market pricing through the end of this year, through the remainder of this year and into 2019 on rates? I think it does, Jonathan. I think that's a big part of it. People look at the the inflation outlook and say, what could really boost inflation dramatically? Is it wage growth? Probably not. And that's typically the biggest driver. So if you put that on the sideline, I think the inflation outlook becomes relatively benign. Now, there are other factors that are more technical in the market in terms of a big avalanche of cash coming into the market and lots of people who simply have excess money to put to work. Those are all well and good. But from a fundamental basis, I'd say, yes, it's the lack of inflation and really very few scenarios that investors can see now that would cause inflation to go up significantly. I think that's constraining rates quite a bit. All right, Mike, you've been doing this for a long time. Have you ever had a period like this where it was so humdrum? where you basically looked at these numbers and I was like, yeah, it's pretty much, doesn't matter, 20,000, 30,000 off, meh. Yeah, it's funny, Lisa, you go back to 2006 and maybe early 2007, people were saying exactly the same thing, and then 2008 was a little bit different. So a little bit. I do remember those stories. Interesting. So is this a corollary to those times? I hope not. I think uh, 2008 was bad enough once. We certainly don't want to see a, a repeat. And you always get asked the question, where's the next crisis? Is it like the last one? It's probably not like the last one, but... Do we see pressures building up that are a little more intense? Yes, I think people are probably a little bit too blasé about the markets right now. We just had a a pretty benign conversation about the payrolls report. Maybe something busts out loose. But when you look at the really the backdrop and say, how many people do we think are relatively fully hedged against big moves in the market? I'd say very few. Clients don't want to buy protection against moves they think won't happen. So typically you want to buy insurance when it's cheap, not when you actually have to get it. And I think people are probably underinsured. Hey, Mike, you're going to stick with us. Mike Schumacher, Wells Fargo Head of Interest Rate Strategy on this Payrolls Friday. It's the first Friday of the month, which typically means Alan Kruger, Princeton University professor and labor market expert, renowned worldwide, usually drops by the studio. So we're going to catch up with Alan about payrolls in just a moment. But Alan, first of all, you're on a one-man mission because you want a Bloomberg tennis charity tournament before the U.S. Open just begins every year. Full disclosure, he just wants to see Tom Keane play tennis. Wants to, is that what it's all about? <laughs> that's what it's all about. That's part of it. <laughs> I'll confess that's part of it, but I am on a campaign. I think it would be great for the Bloomberg image. 
I really put Bloomberg on do the map. Wait, what, what, Bloomberg what, brand expert as well, Alan Kruger. Hold on a second. What image do you think we'd walk away with? <laughs> you know, much more athletic. Tom, 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 Keenan, Tom Keenan shorts playing tennis against you. That's the brand for Bloomberg. He's talked, he's talked up a pretty good tennis game, so I'd like to see it. Honestly. But I would recommend doubles to make it a little less tense. <laughs> we'll run this by Mike and see what happens, Alan. Have you enjoyed the US Open so far? Uh, it's, it's the best sports event in the world, in my opinion. Really? Now, I'm not... I'm not uh, soccer fan the tell, way you tell are. Me, tell me why you think that is, Alan. Oh, for the price, it's great entertainment. I went there on Thursday. Wait, hold on a second. This is such an economic answer that we say, like, <laughs> why do you think it's the best sport? The value, the price proposition is really stellar. There's no better metric. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge you to come up with a better metric. You see the world's greatest athletes. Yeah. I, I went day nine hours on Thursday with my children. Um, and it's just a, a wonderful event. The, the only complaint I have is some some of the fans in New York are too talkative. I agree. I was there for opening night and I experienced the same thing. They had conversations during the point. It, it's rude. It's rude to the players. It's disrespectful to the game. And when I go to the French Open or Wimbledon, you don't see that there. Yeah, it was very strange. It was a strange experience for me too. But on the, on the economics of the visit to the US Open, in the early stages, um, in the early rounds, Lisa, you can go for $50 and basically stay the whole day which is pretty good for a sporting event of the caliber of the, of the U.S. Open. You can actually bring your own food. You have to wait in a longer line. That is a really but, long line. But you can. <laughs> <laughs> I love the economic proposition of uh, the Open mixed with, uh, tinged with a sense of why Americans are rude and Europeans are not. Alan that is Kruger. not what we were doing. Okay, <laughs> a little don't bit, get Jonathan me in trouble. Farrow. That is that not what we were totally doing. was. I'm sorry. Tennis, um, tennis fans from all nations. <laughs> Assembled in Arthur Ashe, okay? <laughs> Look, we have Alan Kruger here. You're a professor at Princeton University. You've been watching these jobs numbers roll in month after month after month. We had Mike Schumacher on earlier from Wells Fargo saying, this is a snooze fest. No one cares. Do you agree? Well, it, people care too much, I would say. Uh, the most volatile day in the financial markets is the first Friday of the month when the jobs report is released. But it's gotten less volatile. The markets in general have gotten less volatile, which is a whole separate puzzle. Uh, but in general, there's more news released when the jobs report comes out than on other days. That's what the market's responding to. I think it probably overreacts. Um, but it sets the pace for the rest of the month. And uh, I know when I worked at the White House, if we had a weak jobs report, it was going to be a bad month coming up because you had to deal with questions about how the economy was doing. But the chances of a weak jobs report today are pretty much nil, Yeah. I wouldn't say nil. Uh, I wouldn't say nil. It depends where you define weak. Below 150,000 jobs, uh, below 100,000 jobs, there's a, there's, a, there's a reasonable chance. So when do we start calling it the wage report and not the jobs <laughs> report? Because I feel like the headline number almost, not doesn't matter, but it's really not what people are looking at. Excellent question. Um, and it's not our best measure of wage pressure. The employment cost index, I think, is probably a better measure of wage pressure, more comprehensive. Uh, and I think we're going to see a little bit of a boost to wages this month because of the base change moving from July to August of 2017. Um, uh, the top line is always going to be jobs. Uh, I think the public can relate to jobs. They relate to unemployment rate. The wage numbers don't necessarily apply to them. Different parts of the workforce are seeing very different wage growth. Yeah. So uh, I think it'll always be the jobs report. I've got to say the, the monthly payrolls report has become frustrating for me, Alan, because we seem to be glossing over 
what is really impressive payrolls growth that has been going on for years now of around 200,000 added every single month. Now, I was told more than two years ago that this would slow. It's not. So let's talk about what the story is actually in the headline number. What story is in the headline number, Alan? First of all, one of those people who told you that was probably me. Together with a load of other people. And you look at our demographics, that's what you expect. And the numbers are really striking because we're not seeing people come back to the labor force. Labor force participation has been pretty stable over the last few years. The prime age workers who may be coming back, we're seeing demographic shifts cancel that out. So overall participation rate has been constant. Given our demographics, given our population growth, we only need job growth of around 100, 120,000 a month to keep the unemployment rate stable. So what's been happening is the unemployment rate has come down more than people had expected. Uh, just switching the puzzle, but it's the other side of the same coin. Uh, we've had a remarkable run and less volatility, as Lisa was mentioning. In, in these numbers, the, the report is noisy. The numbers move around from month to month, they get revised, uh, yet we've been seeing less volatility than we normally see as well. Um, so this recovery, I told this to President Obama, this is not gonna be the strongest recovery, but it could be the longest. And it looks on pace if, you know, we don't have a misguided trade war, uh, we don't shoot ourselves in the foot uh, in other ways in economic policy, this could well eclipse the Clinton recovery, which is the longest one we've had. So, Alan, one thing that is also a misperception or something that people don't talk about is where the wage growth is actually coming from. My sort of perception before digging into the numbers was that the gap between the wealthy and the poor has been widening and that the wage growth and just sort of in general, uh, the benefits have been going to the upper tiers of income earners. But that's actually not the case. And I was speaking with the chief U.S. economist for the conference board who said that the biggest wage gains are actually being seen in blue collar jobs because people aren't going into those. They're going, getting a college degree, incurring all this debt, but they're not becoming plumbers or mechanics or these other uh, jobs that are really important. Can you give us some insight into that? What we're seeing is the normal cyclical pattern. So when the job market gets very tight, the bottom tends to do better. The job market is basically always tight for workers with a high level of skill. When the job market gets tight, when the unemployment rate falls below 5%, you see stronger wage growth for workers with a high school degree, with less than a high school education, because that's the group that the job market is really getting tight for. And that's what we are seeing in this recovery. That's what we saw in the late 1990s as well. And in the late 1990s, that was the only time over the last 30 years when inequality fell in the U.S. And now... I'm not sure inequality is falling because although wage inequality may be dropping a little bit because of the tight labor market, the fact that uh, financial markets are so strong and that housing has been growing uh, has been causing inequality to grow. And that's probably more than offsetting as a, as, as a matter of total income what yeah. we're seeing just with wages. Alan, we have this discussion in absolute terms. We take the unemployment rate and say it has a three-handle. Why isn't wage growth higher? Does the pace of the recovery influence the absolute number, if this is going to be long and shallow in terms of the recovery, does that influence what happens with wage growth? That's a great question. Uh, we really don't know because we haven't had uh, other recoveries like this. Probably the one that comes closest was in the 1990s. And there, when the unemployment rate got below 5%, we saw stronger wage growth. Here, it looks like wage growth is a point, point and a half below what we would expect from what we saw in the 90s. Uh, and uh, it is a mystery, especially in the last year, when wage growth didn't even keep up with inflation. Yeah. Professor, I know you've got to run. You've got to run to TV. 
he's great for us on Payrolls Friday. He actually reads the Payrolls report that drops at 8.30, and he does that live on TV. So, Professor, thank you very much for dropping by the radio studio. Professor Alan Kruger, Princeton University professor. How about those numbers, Lisa Bramberts? Wow, really interesting. You are seeing a, a sell-off sort of accelerating within the U.S. Treasury market, as you said, across the curve. I uh, want to just get a quick reaction from Jim Glassman, J.P. Morgan Chase Commercial Banking Head Economist. Jim, what was your take? Solid report. And, uh, you know, we can't be surprised about solid job reports. Uh, jobless claims continue to come down. So they're telling us there's something good going on in the economy. I think the real focus is now shifting to the wage side. This moderate wage trend has been making people think, well, maybe the Fed might hold back a little bit now and then. But I think what we're beginning to see is that wage trends, like a lot of businesses have been telling us, are starting to pick up. So this is, to me, good news. It means the economy is starting to behave as you would think, and workers are doing really well. Jim, how are we getting payrolls growth of north of 200,000 with the participation rate not going up? It's just come down. Yeah, pretty fascinating, isn't it? And I think it's a reminder about something that we were talking about for years. Uh, there were a lot of folks who were you know, sort of hidden unemployment. And I think what's happening is the strong economy is pulling people back. We still have about a million young people who dropped out of the market, went back to school. You still have a large number of people working part-time, although it's getting back to normal. And I'll bet you a couple of years from now we're going to find out that all this focus on the job situation is drawing people from other parts of the world. And when people hear that there are jobs somewhere, we tend to find immigration picking up. And I'll bet you we don't know the data through but, but through 2016, but I'll bet you some of this is reflecting a shift going on in the immigration flows, legal immigration. Jim Glassman, thank you so much for being with us for all of your insights this morning. Uh, truly a pleasure and really interesting thought there to end on about immigration that we are probably getting more than some people realize. Jim Glassman, J.P. Morgan Chase, commercial banking head economist. Uh, we want to get more insights now. Of course, not from Jonathan Farrow because he has to run off to television. I'm going. Sayonara. I will, I will bring you that interview with Larry Cardlow in about an hour and 10 minutes time. I okay. am very much looking forward to it. We will be listening to it and I will give you a full critique afterwards. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, but, Lisa. I appreciate that. Anytime, Jonathan Farrow. Thank you. Uh, I know that you've been waiting for that. I want to bring in Betsy Stevenson, uh, University of Michigan professor and former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor to get a reaction on the jobs report. And, and really, I want to follow up on what Jim was saying. Are we getting more immigration? Is that where we're getting all of these new jobs? And uh, do you expect that to continue? So, um, no, I, I have a different take on the you know, participation rate coming down. And it's kind of a nerdy statistical take, which is that, you know, when we get this employment report, they're pulling on two different surveys. They're out there talking to businesses, asking them about who they've got on payroll, who they're paying, how many workers they have. And then they're surveying households and asking people, did you have a job? Were you working? How much did you earn? Those kind of things. And then we compare these two surveys. Ideally, they should tell us the same thing. And every once in a while, they don't. I think this report this month, it is a solid report. I'm going to agree there. Um, you know, we're seeing the same kind of thing we normally see. But there is a weakness here, which is in the household survey, people told us that they had fewer jobs. That's not hmm. about immigration or something else. That's just this data showed fewer employed people. When they went out and they surveyed people and they said, do you have a job? We saw big job loss this month in that household survey. That's unusual. What, it's unusual for them to be in different directions. And it's also the case that every month I compare the 
the job growth, the employment growth we see in one survey, the household survey, with that headline number. Sometimes the household survey says, hey, that headline number is stronger than you even realize, and we've seen that in recent months. This month, it's actually saying something different, which is that headline number is weaker than you realize if we average in just a little bit of the information we're getting out of the household survey. Really interesting. And I want to continue talking about what numbers we ought to be paying attention to and what the real picture is. I do want to just bring you some breaking news. Tesla's chief accounting officer, Dave Morton, is resigning. This follows the video of uh, Elon Musk uh, smoking marijuana on a comedy show. But that is not clear that there's any relation whatsoever. Stock down more than 4% in response. Uh, So we will bring you more as we hear it. Again, Tesla chief accounting officer, Dave Morton, resigning a lot of turnover in the C-suite over at Tesla. Betsy Stevenson uh, with us, University of Michigan professor and former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, So, Betsy, you were just saying that probably the headline number is weaker than we realize. Wage gains, though, not so much. And this came in better than people expected. And perhaps this answers the question, why have we not seen faster wage growth? Well, maybe we're getting it now, no? So, you know, I think you need a longer... uh, time period to be able to, to say that. We definitely, uh, this is a good number that we're seeing this month. Um, but if you look over the 12 months, that's up 2.9%. That's a little, that's no nominal. We have to adjust that for inflation. And what we saw last month was no real wage gains. So just last month, the increase in wages was completely offset by the increase in prices. So I wouldn't say, you know, look at this report and say, hooray, um, you know, the wage gains are coming because we have one month of data following a month in which we had zero real wage gains. So I think there's still an underlying puzzle, which is why does this tight labor market not lead employers to hire more people? You know, why are um, employers not saying the way for me to recruit, the way for me to get people in this tight labor market is to offer a somewhat sweeter package. You know, it's really interesting. As I hear you talk, Betsy, it seems like the report that I saw looked very positive. And what you're saying is if you look at a lot of different data, it can be misleading just how rosy of a picture it is. Do you think that the market has currently overestimated the strength of this market? So, you know, I think every month the market overreacts a little bit to the data that comes out. And that's because the, you know, the data we get, it's painting a picture that's really dependent on what's the data we've seen over the last, you know, 12 months. And, um, you know, what I see the broad picture in this report is we've had record job gains for, you know, more the longest spell of job growth in history. Um, that's continuing. We see that in this report. But when I look at a, a headline number that's 200,000, and then I see, um, a, you know, I look at the household number, which shows 400,000 jobs lost. I'm like, whoa, is this, is this labor market potentially starting to slow? I don't know. We'll need to take a look at what next month's numbers are. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if you dig into this report, you see some things that are a little bit disturbing. Um, we saw the unemployment rate for the lowest skilled workers, those with uh, only a high school degree, tick up. Um, we saw um, the unemployment rate of people with only some college also uh, go uh, also increase. So there were, you know, some people in this report who aren't doing quite as well um, as others. Yeah. So there's 
this is not the strong, you know, this is not the strongest report I've seen. Right. Um, we also saw some revisions downward. That's also a little bit disturbing. So last month was revised down um, by 40,000 jobs. Of 40,000 jobs we lost. July, or sorry, June was revised down by 40,000 jobs. July was revised down by 10,000 jobs. Yeah. You know, Taking it all together, this is a slightly weaker report than I was expecting. Really? But again, I don't want to overestimate um, the fact that we are really, you know, in a, a consistent long period of expansion and jobs. Betsy Stevenson, wonderful to get your perspective. Thank you so much. Betsy Stevenson, University of Michigan professor and former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor. We are on Tesla Watch, of course, as we are as this drama unfolds and the crazy gets even more crazy. But we're also on Emerging Markets Watch because there's a big debate raging beneath the surface. Are we just seeing a pause in what has been otherwise a pretty good stretch of years for emerging markets? Or is this the beginning of a larger denouement that will take place and that stems from the raising interest rates in uh, in the United States? Joining us now, is the person who knows everything about emerging markets credit in particular, Damian Sassauer, who heads all things emerging markets and credit related for us at Bloomberg Intelligence. Damian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, in terms of where we are in emerging markets and whether or not there's more pain ahead, I think you just have to kind of look at history. And, and, and look, EM always overshoots, overshoots to the upside and downside. We've been saying that all week. But I think where we are is if you just look, we're pretty much back to, you know, 10, 15 year averages in terms of yields and performance and what have you. And so, if, in, if EM is indeed going to overshoot to the downside here, we've still got some pain left ahead of us, I think. And so that's what we're looking at. And we're looking at a lot of different technical measures. Pim and I had kind of gone through them yesterday, like crossover skew, refinancing, the maturity wall, uh, bid offer spreads. Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, yeah, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. Crossover skew? <laughs> yeah, well, you guys put on this on radio? Hold on. Let's, <laughs> let's just dissect this just a little bit. Let's start. I want to start, if you don't mind, Please. with you explaining how much or give us an idea of how much corporate debt, particularly in Turkey and in Turkish banks, comes due in the next 18 to 24 months? Because this is this not I something yeah. that is not subject abstract. to whether you're buying or selling, you know, Turkish lira or U.S. dollars. This is something that these banks have to face. Yeah, no, we're it's not astrology. <laughs> we're looking for where the most acute refinancing pressures are in EM corporate credit. And so if you do look at Turkey, 19.4 billion US dollars in debt maturities will mature over the next 18 months alone. 18 months alone. That's All right, 20 billion coming that's due. That's about 20 billion coming due exactly. Now, if you think about um, you know, where that economy is and where that financial sector is and you look at what makes up uh, all of those maturities, more than half of it are the banks, right? So it's Hawk Bank, Isbank, Guarantee, Yapi Credit. And the financial sector, as goes the financial sector in many of these emerging market economies, so goes so goes the country. And so if financial- So where are, are they going to get the money to either roll the debt over mm -hmm. or pay the debt back, which doesn't seem likely, but they've got to do one or two things, right? Or maybe three things. Maybe they can restructure, but then don't those loans- those debts on someone else's books turn into really NPLs, like well, non-performing loans? Well, they've already pivoted to the East. So so one would assume that they might look to Russia or perhaps China as a, perhaps a new source of funding to help roll over some of that debt. But, you know, 
I don't think that's gonna. I think I don't think that's gonna go over well with a lot of their Western creditors. And look, I mean, if 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 Erdogan finds you know religion, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, and comes to terms with the fact that he has a lot of Western creditors that he needs to appease because they have a lot of dollar debt outstanding, and he tries to make nice with them. Well, then, look, I mean, you're absolutely right. They can and they have the banks have started to buy back their debt at 50, 60 cents on the dollar already. You are seeing that. But you can see a lot more of that, especially if they get some of the larger fund managers who are positioned their back on sides like BlackRock, Fidelity, Ashmore, you name it. So, yeah, well, there's also another big question here going beyond just Turkey and beyond the fundamentals, which some people are saying. Uh, aren't necessarily reflected in the sell-off. I mean, this is sort of beyond just what people are looking at and and extrapolating from. This seems to be more uh, covering losses and and a little bit of just fear of the unknown. A big question mark has been China and just the strength of it, especially in light of some of the uh, rising trade tensions with the U.S. potentially imposing 25% tariffs on an additional $200 billion of goods from China. How important is China in this equation? Because we have not seen that shoe drop yet. It's absolutely important. And, you know, I, I'm I'm more of a Hank McVeigh Blackstone guy when it comes to China. I think China's had its hard landing already. I mean, you got to think China was growing the size of its economy. It was growing at you know upwards of high teens, 20% per year GDP for some time. It's now down to 6% and declining. So they've really come off a long way if you adhere to that. Well, but hold on a second. But that, would you call this a hard landing? Because well, I would say that this, if they've already had their big drop, it's been the softest big drop ever. <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, what I, what I guess I'm arguing in, in, is that with all of the tariff talk and all of the stuff that's coming through specifically now, um, yeah, we're going to see GDP decline in China. We, But at the same breath, they've paused their deleveraging campaign. So they are now trying to foster liquidity domestically, which, by the way, has been tightening quite considerably. I mean, that's why EM is really off, is because Asian financial conditions have tightened like crazy. And whereas here in the U.S., even though we're, the Fed is tightening, financial conditions are very loose, if not looser than they were just a year ago. So, you know, it, it, that's the divide and that's the disconnect. And I think that's what's driving performance in bonds yeah. and equities and the divergence between the U.S. and the rest of the world. You know, I got to say, Pim, what Damien just said is is really big because it goes against a lot of the conventional wisdom here that is tightening Fed policy that's driving this sell-off. Damien points out something way more interesting to me, which is that this really has to do with China tightening. And, and the banks. That makes sense. I think it does. I mean, look, China, as go, they, China's the biggest trade partner for emerging market economies globally. It used to be the U.S. some time ago, but that's changed. And so when China catches cold, the rest of EM sneezes, or maybe I have that backwards. But you know what I'm trying to say. I, I mean, EM yeah, is I definitely got, got one. I mean, they are definitely beholden to China. Look at commodities, right? I mean, back in the rally last year or the last two or three years, commodities were ripping to the upside, specifically industrial metals like copper and, and nickel and what have you. Now, you know, the red metal's in the dumpster, right? I mean, you had Mike McClone on here not long ago. He's the first one to tell you. He's been calling for, you know, a turn in copper for some time, but it's not coming, and it's the same thing with emerging markets. Damien, we've all had to become instant experts in Turkey, South Africa, Argentina, and I confess, I feel a little bit, uh, you know, uneasy pretending that I know, you know, it's like an inch deep and a mile (laughs) wide. But are we going to have to become experts in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in oh, yeah. Czech Republic? Because it seems as though those countries and others are raising their interest rates in order to forestall a exit yeah. of foreign investment money. 
And as a result, they raise interest rates in their own economies, which is not a good thing for an economy that's slowing or not growing very rapidly. Now, the big theme that uh, that foreign investors that drew them to emerging markets originally was the scope to which these local central banks could ease rates to facilitate GDP growth. I because mean, that, there wasn't a acceleration in inflation. Correct, because the U.S., we had interest rates globally at all-time lows. I mean, negative interest rates in most markets. And so so now that that's moving in the other direction, obviously emerging markets, that, that theme no longer resonates, right? Emerging market central banks are tightening rates. They have to. They have to compete for well, capital Well, they don't have the anything US. else to do, really. Right. They don't have any other tools, right? Right. They don't have monetary trans policy transmission mechanisms like we do. Or, or for that matter, they do have tools, but the tools, unfortunately are crude and you know the transmission mechanism is not as clean so let me give you an example in indonesia they are now instead of having raised rates 125 basis points since may they are taxing imports you know they are taking you know other sort of you know steps to sort of prevent capital from fleeing the economy and when you do that things get muddled in a hurry and so that's kind of where we are so just looking out into your crystal ball, do you expect some forced selling after active funds have underperformed? Well, seasonally, we are in the midst of the worst season for emerging markets. I mean, we're in October here, uh, or getting to be, uh, we're in September, I but it's going to be October. I think we're still in September. There's a seasonality to this that, that is divorced from all of what's going on, yeah, right? Yeah, the August to October three-month period has historically been the worst for emerging market assets, but come November... The November to January period is the most bullish. So, and, and it has been the best. So, and my advice would be to take a pause, to wait and see, and prepare for November, and let's see where the markets are then. Certainly, but you know, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be long and wrong into October. I mean, history has proved to be a killer. Wow. Okay. Long uh, and wrong. I was going to say, and and the bad news is, <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. The bad news is a lot of people have been long and wrong, and for them to reload at these levels is going to be very difficult to do. Indeed. Thanks very much. Damien Sassauer, Bloomberg Intelligence. He's our emerging markets credit analyst, and he knows all about this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.